Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm I'm advised there are rumors afloat here in London, England, that uh, summer isn't over in the United States yet. So I'm going to be uh, undertaking a week-long fact-finding mission to check that out. But here in London, one does, under the uh, cover of slightly murky skies, at least enjoy some of the benefits of being outside the bubble. I was, uh, for example, wondering this week, whatever happened to the black box? The black box from MH17. MH17? Remember earlier this month, and last month, the uh, Malaysian airliner that fell from the sky over eastern Ukraine? And uh, they retrieved the black box. What has it said? Somehow it's fallen out of the headlines. I'm not going to make inapposite analogies, but it's fallen out of the headlines nonetheless, the whole story. And it made me start poking around a little bit to find out some news outside the bubble. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Well, near the beginning of this month, August 7th to be exact, the New Straits Times, the flagship English language newspaper in Malaysia, reportedly having at least ties to the Malaysian government, if not controlled by the Malaysian government, which is not an enemy, an avowed enemy of the United States government, by the way. An article in the New Straits Times charged the U.S. and European-backed Ukrainian regime in Kiev with shooting down MH17. One can speculate this report, rather controversial as it might be, because of the relationship of the newspaper to the government, may have something like the imprimatur of the Malaysian government. The U.S. and European media, as you've noticed, have not uh, passed this on, except for some websites of the left variety. The, t- the article, titled U.S. Analysts Conclude MH17 Downed by Aircraft, lays out evidence that the Ukrainian fighter aircraft attacked the jetliner first with a missile, then with bursts of 30-millimeter machine gun fire from both sides of the passenger plane. The Russian army has already presented detailed radar and satellite data showing a Ukrainian Sukhoi-25 fighter jet tailing MH17 shortly before the jetliner crashed, something denied by the Ukrainian regime. The New Straits Times articles began, intelligence analysts in the United States have already concluded that Malaysia flight MH17 was shot down by an air-to-air missile and that the Ukrainian government had had something to do with it, quoting the New Straits Times. This corroborates, continuing to to quote, this corroborates an emerging theory postulated by local investigators that the Boeing passenger plane was crippled by an air-to-air missile and finished off with cannon fire from a jet that had been shadowing it, unquote. Quoting again, experts who had said that the photograph of the blast fragmentation patterns on the fuselage of the airliner showed two distinct shapes, the shredding pattern associated with a warhead packed with flechettes, and the more uniform round-type penetration holes consistent with that of cannon rounds. A Canadian-Ukrainian monitor for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Michael Bocherku, was quoted by the paper. 
He was one of the first investigators to arrive at the crash site. Speaking to the CBC in Canada at the end of July, he said there have been two or three pieces of fuselage that have been really pockmarked with what almost looks like machine gun fire. Very, very strong machine gun fire. And then, on a related subject, and in a distinctly establishmentarian publication, Foreign Affairs, the publication of the Council on Foreign Relations in the the good old United States, not outside the bubble, but as well as a piece by a University of Chicago political science professor, John Mearsheimer, saying the taproot of the trouble in Ukraine is NATO enlargement, the central element of a larger strategy to move Ukraine out of Russia's orbit and integrate it into the West. Since the mid-1990s, Mearsheimer reminds us, Russian leaders have adamantly opposed the enlargement of NATO. And in recent years, they've made it clear they would not stand by while their strategically important neighbor, Ukraine, turned into a Western bastion. For Putin, the overthrow of Ukraine's democratically elected and pro-Russian president, he he labeled it a coup, was the final straw, and he responded by taking Crimea. The West had been moving, says Mearsheimer, into Russia's backyard and threatening its core strategic interests, a point Putin made emphatically and repeatedly. Elites in the United States and Europe, Mearsheimer writes, have been blindsided by events only because they subscribe to a flawed view of international politics. They tend to believe that the logic of realism, or realpolitik, holds little relevance in the 21st century, as opposed to liberal principles like the rule of law, economic interdependence, and democracy, which American officials proclaim to be universal. This grand scheme, says Mearsheimer, went awry in Ukraine, and the crisis there shows realpolitik remains relevant, and states that ignore it do so at their own peril. News and stuff from outside the bubble, a copyrighted feature of Hello, Welcome to the Show.
day My world is dark when there's no you You like my skies in the dark night bright day From London, England, where autumn comes early and stays late, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, the Apologies of the Week. A lot of people apologizing for stuff they said this week. Dateline Fort Wayne, Indiana, Northeastern Indiana judge apologized for saying at a public retirement reception for court staff members that one of the female retirees could have a second career as a phone sex operator. Superior Court Judge Stanley Levine used a microphone to make the comment at an, attend, at an event attended by family, friends, co-workers, and some children. Think about the children. First of all, I wanted to state I have made a sincere and heartfelt apology to the woman about whom I made inappropriate remarks by talking to her personally. On the phone, sir? And she has accepted my apology, Judge Levine told the local newspaper. He added, what I quite mistakenly meant to be humorous was, in truth, extremely tasteless. I deeply regret having said it. Humor by amateurs, ladies and gentlemen. Then Los Angeles, where former punk rocker Henry Rollins. Is he still on KCRW? Um, Made a statement about Robin Williams' Suicide. This is the last, I guess, of the Robin Williams apologize, apologies carried over from last week. Quoting Henry Wallens, Did I hurt anyone by, I said, by what I said? And I did hurt many. Disgusts me. It was not at all my intent, but it most certainly was the result. I have had a life of depression. Some days are excruciating. Knowing what I know and having been through what I have, I should have known better, but I obviously did not. I get so mad when I hear that someone has died this way. Not mad at them, mad at whatever got them there, and that no one magically appeared to somehow save them. I'm not asking for a break from the caning. Take me to the woodshed as much as you see fit. If what I said has caused you to be done with me, I get it. I'm deeply sorry, down to my marrow. I can't think that means anything to you, but I am completely sorry. It is not of my interest to hurt anyone, but I know I did. Henry. Now there's an apology not written by a lawyer. 
ladies and gentlemen. Day Len Las Vegas Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid apologized for jokes he made about Asians during a business luncheon in Las Vegas earlier this week. Reid was addressing the city's Asian Chamber of Commerce when he told the audience, I don't think you're smarter than anybody else, but you've convinced a lot of us you are. When another man was summoned to the podium, he grabbed the microphone and quipped, One problem I've had today is keeping my wongs straight. <laughs> Both comments were met with laughter from the crowd. But the incident was captured on video and posted and distributed by a Republican opposition research firm. Reed later issued a statement saying, My comments were in extremely poor taste and I apologize. Sometimes I say the wrong thing. I don't think a lawyer wrote that either. A distinguished professor at the University of Oxford, or as we call it in England, Oxford University, has apologized for his controversial remark that it was immoral to allow babies with Down syndrome to be born. Richard Dawkins, a biologist and atheist, set fire to social media during a Twitter conversation with a woman who said she would have a real ethical dilemma if she became pregnant with a baby who had the syndrome. Abort it and try again, Dawkins replied to the woman. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. Twitter erupted with thousands of users furious over the comments. Some said Dawkins was promoting eugenics. Dawkins fiercely defended his very civilized views because these are fetuses diagnosed before they have human feelings, he tweeted in response to angry tweeters. But the professor, who once said it was worse to be raped by a stranger than date rape, slightly changed his tune in a Wednesday post on his blog saying he wasn't suggesting people with Down syndrome should not exist. I would never dream of saying to any person you should have been aborted before you were born. He also apologized to the woman he first directed his comments to. The choice would be entirely yours, and I would never dream of trying to impose my views on you or anyone else. One of the sponsors of last week's Space and Missile Defense Symposium has issued an apology for the way media members were treated in event, at the event in a letter to Alabama.com, retired Major General Arnold Punaro, U.S. Marine Corps and Chairman of the Board of the National Defense Industrial Association, said the treatment of news media representatives and attendees was uncalled for and unaccepted. His letter comes after a series of incidents at the popular symposium held at the Von Braun Center in Huntsville. Media members were so, said they were told they could not take photos of slides that were marked for public release, and in one case, security personnel pre physically prevented a reporter from asking a question. Panaro said he is contacting those he knows were affected to offer an apology. Missile defense needs as good a press as it can get. Dayline San Antonio, the Washington Post, apologized this week for an offensive subhead published in print and online on Tuesday in an article about Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro that read, We'll need more fajitas. The copy editor who wrote it, a brilliant and supremely reliable colleague who had a bad day, said Al Kamen, the columnist on, over whose column the subhead appeared, was attempting to evoke the Texas origins of the secretary and his aides. He has apologized. Poplar Bluff, Missouri, a Poplar Bluff city councilman is under fire for posting what some are calling racist photos of President Obama. Here we go again on his Facebook page. The incident was brought up at Monday night's city council meeting. Tuesday, Councilman Peter Tinsley apologized. He said when he posted the photos last year, he never meant to offend anyone. However, some of his constituents found them to be racist. I apologize, Tinsley said, from the bottom of my heart. 
At one time, I was a very active Republican and continued very opposed to Obama. Then the Republicans got mad at him. And deadline Kuala Lumpur. The organizer of a nudist sports festival in Penang has apologized for holding the event. It triggered outrage in Malaysia and led to the arrest of eight people. A video of the May gathering, the Nude Sport Games 2014, first appeared on social media earlier this month and then went viral. Imagine that. It showed naked participants engaged in a range of activities, including body painting, dancing, relay races, and various other contests. Co-organizer Albert Yam, who is in police custody, publicly apologized for the naturist event in an open letter, according to the New Straits Times. We will not do it again, and please accept our deepest apologies for our misconduct, which has caused embarrassment to the country. Yam is in his 40s, and he lives in neighboring Singapore. The gathering has been condemned by Muslim conservatives and non-Muslims alike, and triggered heated online exchanges between critics and supporters of the nudists. Oh, and yes, one more. St. Louis County Police Chief John Belmar relieved Officer Dan Page of his duty after video emerged of Page making an hour-long speech full of hateful remarks directed towards African-Americans, women, and President Obama. Page also happened to be the officer who was caught on camera physically pushing CNN's Don Lemon during a live report on the Ferguson protests. Belmar apologized to anyone in the community who was offended by Page's remarks. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, big media news this week when it was announced that Chuck Todd, NBC's political director, was replacing David Gregory as the moderator of Meet the Press. Now, first of all, moderator. What's he moderating? <laughs> it's a it's a name, a title left over from the original format of Meet the Press, which was four reporters, fairly anonymous guys from newspapers on a panel interviewing one quote-unquote newsmaker. And the moderator was a guy who basically said, now you talk to each of the reporters in turn. He moderated. That's long gone. But he's still called the moderator because to call him an anchor makes him sound like he's dragging the thing down, which is why they replaced David Gregory, I guess. Um, Full disclosure, I got to know David Gregory when we were both reporting on the O.J. Simpson civil trial my God, 19 years ago or something like that. And um, he embarrassed me, ladies and gentlemen, in all truth, by being as good at doing Tom Brokaw as I think I was. Anyway, the uh, statement announcing Chuck Todd's ascension to the moderatorhood noted uh, NBC's pleasure in the fact that Chuck Todd loves the game of politics and, and, and is deep understanding and loves the game. Uh, interesting, because um, <laughs> the game increasingly seems to be um, two parties vying for who gets larger contributions from the financial world. That being said, I did pay attention this week to one story uh, about politics. I think widely ignored, but there you go. Uh, McClatchy newspapers reported that in this week's primary elections, Candidates backed by former Alaska governor Sarah Palin didn't do well, especially in her home state. 
A referendum to restore her signature achievement from her time as Alaska governor, a state tax on oil companies, was headed toward defeat. Only four of the six, uh, 15 congressional candidates endorsed by her nationwide this year have won their primaries, a far worse record, record than in the previous two elections when she played role as kingmaker, and her approval was eagerly sought by candidates. Though she does remain talented at raising money, she had urged her fellow Alaskans to vote for Tea Party candidate Joe Miller on Tuesday in the state's Republican primary. Alaskans received automated robocalls with her voice, urging them to get out and vote for Miller for the Senate. Miller was easily defeated by Republican establishment candidate Dan And ladies and gentlemen, the Democratic um, senator in the general election, and she also lost that effort to defend her signature tax on the oil companies. Palin backed failed attempts to unseat incumbent Senators Thad Cochran in Mississippi and Lamar Alexander in Tennessee. Her Senate picks in Oklahoma, Minnesota, and Georgia all failed to advance beyond the Republican primary as well. She did have success with her Nebraska pick, endorsing Ben Sass's successful campaign for the GOP Senate nomination. And uh, she joined Mitt Romney and Marco Rubio in stumping for Joni Ernst, who won the Republican Senate primary in Iowa. Just one of her choices for the U.S. House, Barry Loudermilk in Georgia, run the, the Republican primary. Her picks for the House lost in Texas, North Carolina, New Jersey, Florida, and Georgia. She may be on that bridge after all. Seeking you is 
From London, this is Le Show, and now... News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Eversold, Jr. Well, there's good news and bad news from Rio. Rio de Janeiro passed its first 2016 Olympics test with the end of an international sailing regatta on Guanabara Bay, one of the most heavily criticized venues in the city, which is under attack for disorganization and construction delays. During the week-long event, many athletes and coaches were surprised to find this the bay's notoriously dirty water, infamous for raw sewage, floating garbage, boat-battering debris, and animal corpses to be far cleaner than expected. Quote, I noticed a big difference. There was a lot less rubbish in the water than there was a year ago, said the helmswoman for the winning New Zealand team. She said she still prefers the pristine waters of her Pacific Island nation and still felt Guanabara Bay needed work. On the other hand, there's the little matter of golf being back in the Olympics. After 112 years... It's making its Olympic comeback. But while the official Rio 2016 website gushes about a new chapter in the history of Brazilian golf, in the meantime, the golf course the city is building for the event is doing serious damage to Rio de Janeiro. On its way to becoming reality, the project has handily steamrolled all potential roadblocks from land use regulations to environmental protection laws to <laughs> silly old thing called legislative checks and balances. The city of Rio is committed $26 million to the golf course currently under construction in Barra da Tijuca. The median cost for design and construction of an 18-hole 18 18 course is around $4.5 million. This is 26.8. Itanhanga Golf Club, one of Rio's two existing 18-hole courses, ranks on Golf Digest's list of the 100 best golf courses outside the U.S. And it's just a 20-minute drive from the Olympic Village. But it was never sought out about the possibility of hosting the Olympics, wrote the club's president. The chosen site turned out to be some of the region's last undeveloped real estate, resting on 11 million square feet of ecologically fragile marshland. The area was a patchwork of mangrove sandbanks and shoals jutting into a lagoon until the bulldozers arrived. And the remaining fragments of Brazil's Mata Atlantica contain the highest biodiversity index of any biome on Earth, harboring 8% of the world species, many of which are found only in Brazil. But environmental laws 
were waived for the project. The law even redrew the borders of the municipal reserve, carving out the pace that lays within the intended golf course's bounds, nullifying its protected status. And in exchange for funding the course construction, a developer is now allowed to construct 23 new 22-story luxury high-rises on the same parcel. Almost as if it's a real estate deal wrapped in the package of a movement. But it is the Olympics, ladies and gentlemen, and it is a movement. We all need one every day. And we could use a real estate deal every day, too. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what the frack? Deadline Chicago, many chemicals used in hydraulic fracturing or fracking can disrupt not only the human body's reproductive hormones, but also the glucocorticoid and thyroid hormone receptors, which are necessary to maintain good health. According to a new study, this is from endocrine.org. You don't go to that website? The results were presented at a joint meeting of the International Society of Endocrinology and the Endocrine Society. Glad they could get together finally. Among the chemicals the fracking industry has reported using most often, all 24 that we have tested block the, re- the activity of one or more important hormone receptors. That's according to the studies presenting author Christopher Casotis from the University of Missouri, Columbia. They have universities in Missouri now. The high levels of hormone disruption by endocrine-disrupting chemicals, EDCs, have been associated with many poor health outcomes such as infertility, cancer, and birth defects. In earlier research, the group found that water samples collected from sites with documented fracking spills in Colorado had moderate to high levels of EDC activity that mimicked or blocked the effects of the female hormones and the male hormones in human cells. Water in areas away from these gas drilling sites showed little EDC activity regarding these two reproductive hormones. The new study extended the analysis to learn whether high-use fracking chemicals change other key hormone receptors besides estrogen and androgen. Specifically, the researchers also looked at the receptor for female reproductive hormone progesterone, as well as those for glucocorticoid, a hormone important to the immune system, which also plays a role in reproduction and fertility, and for thyroid hormone. Among 24 fracking chemicals that Casotis and his colleagues repeatedly tested for such activity, 20 blocked the estrogen receptor, preventing estrogen from binding to the receptor and being able to have its natural effect. In addition, 17 chemicals inhibited the androgen receptor. 10 hindered the progesterone receptor. 10 blocked the glucocorticoid receptor. And 7 inhibited the thyroid hormone receptor. Casotis cautioned they haven't measured these chemicals in local water samples. It's likely that the high concentrations tested would not show up in drinking water. However, he said mixtures of these chemicals act together to make their hormone-disrupting effects worse than any one chemical alone. And tested drinking water normally contains mixtures of EDCs. It's the wonderland of chemical mixtures, ladies and gentlemen. Drink up. saw me standing alone without a dream in my heart without a love of my own 
just what I was there for You heard me say in a prayer for Someone I really could care for And then there suddenly appeared before me The only one my arms will hold I heard somebody whisper, please adore me And when I looked to the moon, it turned to gold Blue moon Now I'm no longer alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own Blue moon Now I'm no longer alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own The modern Western European and North American metropolis is a multicultural wonderland as we know and people wear all sorts of garb from um, harking back to their homelands or uh, denoting their religious affiliations and um, the multicultural social contract we all live under these days dictates that we all kind of just um, acknowledge it and um, get on with our business and most of us are happy or at least agreeable to live up to that contract there's there's one exception there are uh, women in paris certainly in london and uh and in some american cities too who uh, not only cover their bodies totally but cover their faces in uh, garments that are usually all black I, I think you know what i'm talking about um and it's aroused some controversy Uh, most notably in France, dealing with their own problems of multiculturalism, i.e. a uh, resurgence in anti-Semitism, also noted in other countries in Europe. But the French have long hewed to a standard of secularism in public life. And so uh, following that mandate, the uh, French government recently banned the wearing of uh, full-faced coverings in public, on public streets and in, in public generally. Here in England, uh, uh, not so much, not not at all. Uh, you can go down streets in most neighborhoods in London these days and see uh, women so arrayed. And it's ironic because London is the city, I'm pretty sure you can check the statistics on this, but it's the city with the most surveillance cameras per capita probably in the Western world, maybe in the whole world. Thanks, Tony Blair. As I say, up to now, there hasn't been any official reaction to the profusion of burqa-clad women on the streets of London. Now, there is reporting when the subject comes up that maintains that this garb is not religiously required. And, of course, the presence of millions and millions of Muslim women around the world, including here in London, who uh, aren't so garbed would suggest that, that that would be the case. Um, the usual explanation is it's either personal preference or uh, their husbands made them do it or it's uh, just a higher form of modesty. Now, uh, one has noticed, one can't help noticing that the only people who routinely cover their faces are um, bad guys in Westerns, militant insurgents of every stripe, 
in every country, and uh, these women. And uh, now there, I, I have not been. I don't, I don't follow crime news all that carefully, but I don't think there's been any cases involved where where the uh, suspect was identified as a, a woman with a face veil. The first time it does happen, though, some politician here in England is going to say, we have all these cameras, and um, now we're looking for a woman in a face veil. That's one way of looking at the subject. There is, of course, another way. street and you have to blink she swept along in a billow of ink you're so mesmerized you have to stare at the absence of lips ears nose and hair she seems to have what the other girls lack The go thither lore Of the lady in black It doesn't seem likely And yet it's true You're not supposed to look Sure enough you do The eyes tell the story that the rest conceals And when you catch her gaze Oh, how magical it feels The view's much the same From the front or the back Just one of the charms Of the lady in black Miracles do happen you can't forget what you see An amorphous drape hides a womanly shape And you get the whole show for free Odds are you'll never meet Odds are you'll never speak You'll never kiss Or know the bliss of that well-hidden cheek she lives on every night in your dreams To lurk under burka <laughs> She's not what she seems To make nothing of something Ooh, She's got the knack She's in there somewhere The lady in black But miracles still happen There may be one today A wedding may soon follow She'll swirl in on a cloud of grey And we'll have some kids That's a way down the track Little boys, just for the noise, and of course, a little lady in black. 
Lady in black Lady in black Ladies and gentlemen, the new F-bomb for closure. We um, learned this week, thanks to, the administ- thanks to Eric Holder, that the administration has concluded a, um, a deal. This is what you do when you commit big-time crimes. You make a deal with the Justice Department. Uh, this time with Bank of America for $16.65 billion. Uh, much of it, supposedly $7 billion, devoted to helping homeowners still in trouble with their mortgages. There are predictions on some of the uh, finance blogs, by the way, that uh, the foreclosure machine is expected to speed up again soon. It's been uh, in re- in remission somewhat due to the fact that they've been told to clean up their paperwork. You know about this chain of title problems. Anyway, the Bank of America settlement was, was trumpeted this week by Eric Holder. We have already, though, some evidence, uh, a previous such settlement with another miscreant. Hey, how come guys who rob liquor stores don't get to make settlements? Um, a settlement uh, in which J.P. Morgan Chase was supposed to deliver $4 billion in relief to homeowners through reducing interest rates or principal on mortgages to help people avoid foreclosure. J.P. Morgan Chase has three years to make good on the relief. An initial report from Joseph Smith, who's overseeing J.P. Morgan's consumer relief obligation, reported in The Guardian, shows the bank's money is not flying out that fast. As of March 31st this year, five months after the settlement, J.P. Morgan only claimed modifications on 100 loans for a grand total of $6 million in credited relief, a little under 1% of the total it has promised. In its settlement, even though the settlement provides a bonus credit for relief delivered during the first year, J.P. Morgan has decided to, that's one bonus they're passing on, apparently. Community housing activists question whether the relief will ever materialize. One group even filed a Freedom of Information Act request last month asking the Justice Department about how the settlement is being implemented. By the way, J.P. Morgan and its Competitors like Bank of America don't even have to give relief directly to homeowners to earn their way out of the penalties. They can just sign more loans. Banks can get credit for making new mortgages available to borrowers in hard-hit areas or in disaster zones to first-time low-to-moderate-income buyers or to borrowers who lost their homes to foreclosures. Oh, sure, they love to have a new mortgage. Since making loans is the business model, the basic business model for most banks. Interesting that this is considered a penalty for misconduct. Banks get a flat $10,000 in credit for each loan made. Congratulations. You've committed fraud. Uh, Also, news of the new F-bomb, in an unprecedented trial, which ended this week, four people charged with mortgage fraud were acquitted by a jury in Sacramento Federal Court Defense attorneys had argued the real culprits were not the mortgage borrowers, the homeowners, but the so-called, as they were depicted in the case, the victim lenders. According to experts, this is in the Sacramento Bee, it's the first time in such a trial that a court has allowed the defense to present evidence that the lenders ignored gaping holes and blatant lies and loan applications 
so-called liar's loans, during the years leading up to the economic meltdown. The big banks and other lenders made as many loans based on patently false information as they could, packaged them as securities, and passed them up the chain to Wall, Street, Wall Street's investment and management bankers who peddled them to an unsuspecting public, said defense lawyer Tim Pori after the verdict. No bank executives, he noted, have been prosecuted. The U.S. attorney in the case said criminal trials are inherently uncertain endeavors. We respect the criminal trial process. An acquittal in Sacramento Federal Court is rare regardless of the, pro- the charges. With respect to mortgage fraud, it is virtually unheard of. The um, U.S. Attorney's Office described this, the Central Valley as ground zero for mortgage fraud, noted that it has been a national pace setter in pursuing the perpetrators, i.e. the borrowers. You know, the people who made it a business model to give so-called Liars loans or Nina loans, no income, no assets. Those are terms in the industry. This is the first time that the overwhelming fraud at the banks has been discussed in a criminal courtroom by the person with the greatest expertise on the issue, William Black, said the defense lawyer. You've heard William Black on this program. He was a key expert witness for the defense. Prosecutors have refused to criminally prosecute the bankers responsible for the mortgage crisis that decimated our economy. The jurors heard shocking testimony from Black that the regular people who got loans they were unable to pay back did not defraud the banks. The bankers commit the fraud while the prosecutors look the other way and prosecute the wrong people. Or allow them to say, hey, let's just settle. News of the new F-bomb, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. You probably heard, uh, maybe you didn't, The Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons noted in the last few days that the last known precursor chemicals mixed to make Syria's deadly sarin gas collection has been destroyed aboard the U.S. maritime vessel Cape Ray in the Mediterranean. That completed the destruction of the last of Syria's stockpile of mustard gas. According to the Chemical Weapons Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons Director General. This ends a crucial stage in the complex international maritime operation to remove and destroy Syria's chemical weapons stockpile. A year after John Kerry, our Secretary of State, said of Syria's President Assad, he's never going to give up his chemical weapons. Quote, he isn't about to do that. It can't be done, unquote. Yet, of course, it has been. Theodore Postal, a weapons and security expert at MIT, interviewed by McClatchy newspapers, called it an amazing accomplishment. On the other hand, he said, as far as knowing about what happened, our knowledge today is about where it was last September. He's referring to the chemical weapons attack in Syria that the United States blamed on Syria without, he says, much evidence having been proffered. We could have attacked Syria in reprisal. That was the red line that President Obama declared Syria had crossed. We could have done very grave damage, Postal says, not just to Syria, but to our own security. What we almost did matters because what we almost did would have seriously weakened the Syrian regime. We have to ask where we would be today if Syria had been weakened. Assad's Syria doesn't deserve any support, he says. 
but the Islamic State is the bigger threat. The actions we were planning could have handed them to Syria. So says Theodore Postal, a weapons and security expert at MIT. Apparently these days, John Kerry would like to be the last to die for a mistake. And now, news of our friend the Atom. Hattie's getting a two-week vacation. Wow. It's almost European. Um, Speaking of bad guys who refuse to be bad enough to live up to our expectations, Dateline Vienna, Iran is taking action to comply with the terms of an extended agreement with six world powers over its disputed atomic activities, according to a new UN nuclear watchdog report. The findings, though no major surprise except to some, may be seen as positive by the West ahead of the expected resumption next month of negotiations on ending the decade-old dispute. The IAEA document made clear Iran is continuing to meet its commitments under the interim agreement that it reached with the U.S., France, Germany, Britain, China, and Russia late last year. In addition, as agreed when the deal was extended by four months in July, it has begun using some of its higher-grade enriched uranium to produce fuel, a step that experts say would make it more difficult to use the material for bombs. The IAEA is tasked with checking that Iran is living up to its part of the agreement. And it is. The bad guys just refuse to be bad enough. Thank goodness we've got a new terrorist organization on our hands. Deadline Seoul, South Korea. That country needs to quickly find additional space where it can store its spent nuclear fuel because some of its temporary storage capacity will be full by 2016. That's according to an independent body that advises the government on nuclear issues. Well, you could just put it, you know, in the shed. The country has 23 nuclear reactors supplying about a third of its power. Seoul has been under pressure to cut its reliance on nuclear power since 2012, when safety scandals led to the temporary shutdown of reactors to replace parts that were supplied with fake Certificates. What could go wrong? At the end of last year, 13,000 change tons of spent fuel was being held in temporary storage at the nuclear plants, according to data from the commission, mainly in water tanks. What could go wrong? But some in concrete containers. We'll find a place for it. Sometime. Clean, cheap, safe. Too safe to store. Our friend the Adam... Ladies and gentlemen, um, if if you are so bold as to question the judgment of the host of this program at, at sharing with you some of the items at the beginning of the broadcast regarding MH17, the report from the New Straits Times, and um, the piece by John Mearsheimer in Foreign Affairs, be, for being perhaps reflexively anti-American, might be might be a a thought that some of you might have. Let me just recommend a broadcast that was on the BBC World Service radio network uh, this weekend. It's available on the internet. Its name is War, Lies, and Audio Tape. 
And now that 50 years have passed since the Gulf of Tonkin incident, it reveals through the use of tapes made by President Lyndon Johnson while he was in the White House, how exactly how aware White House and other high U.S. government officials were that the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which sparked a major escalation in the Vietnam War, probably never occurred. And on that cheery note, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave. Around the world via the internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want it. HarryShearer.com and KCSN.org. Uh, available on the Mighty 104 in Berlin. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from WWNO.org, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Free. And it would be just like it would be it being free if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you? Already. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO for help with today's broadcast. for this broadcast and a list of the music heard here on. It's part of the Wonderland available at harryshearer.com where the store features Cars I Talk t-shirts. Imagine that. You can either buy the t-shirts or the reruns of the t-shirts. Me, I'm the Harry Shearer on Twitter. Join the more than 101,000 followers, won't you? There's not even a membership card. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from London. London.